We didn't carry military manuals around with us. We were out on the veldt fighting the boer the way he fought us. I'll tell you what rule we applied, sir. We applied rule 303. We caught them and we shot them under rule 303. CJ here, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar warrior, and renaissance man for the new dark age, back with another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. This is going to be episode 127 of the DHP, and this is going to be a movie review of the 1980 film Breaker Morant. So, what exactly is Rule 303, and what does it all mean? Well, if you don't already know, we'll get to that in a little bit. First, though, I've got to give some Patreon shoutouts. Thanks to the following excellent individuals for stepping up to help support the show on an ongoing basis via patreon.com slash profcj. Heartfelt thanks go out to Patrick Henry, and I've just got to say it's great to have a founding father on board, especially the one who is famous for having said, give me liberty or give me death. And also thanks to Janice, Shane, Jan, and Carol Thank you all very, very much for helping to keep this show growing and going and trucking right along. And remember, those of you listening, if you're not already a member of the Dangerous History Podcast Patreon supporters group, if you step up to support the show at just a dollar per episode or more, you have access to special bonus episodes in Patreon that are available nowhere else, and you'll also be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors Facebook group, which is a private group just for those who support the show at a dollar per episode or more. Also have a couple of thanks to give for some items I received recently from my DHP Amazon wish list. Thanks again to Ken, who's been very kind lately with this stuff, for ordering me The Penal Colony, a novel by Richard Hurley, and for also ordering me The Chaos Imperative by Ori Brothman, who's one of the authors who wrote the book The Starfish and the Spider, of which I'm a big fan, so I'm interested to read this book very much. And as always, I will have links to the DHP Patreon page and also links to my Amazon wish list if anybody is seeking to unburden themselves of some excessive funds or Amazon credits. Now, like I always say, or try to say at least when I do a movie review here, warning plot spoilers. So if you're one of those delicate little flower teacup whatevers who can't stand plot spoilers, and I'm not one of these people myself... But if you are one, then I'd highly recommend, if you've not seen the movie Breaker Morant already, you pause this episode right now, go watch the movie, and then come back. But if you've either already seen this movie, or if you're someone who doesn't really care if you get a few plot spoilers, you'll still want to see the movie anyway, then don't worry about pausing. The movie Breaker Morant is based on a play that was in turn based on a true story, and as far as I know, as far as I've been able to tell the movie largely does follow the facts of history. There's a few cases where they might have taken a slight bit of license here and there, but it's based on a true story that occurred 
during the British war in South Africa that's sometimes called the Boer War or the Second Boer War, and, and occasionally, more recently, it's sometimes just called the South African War. And it's the war that took place from 1899 to 1902. And this story is set towards the end of that war in 1901. And before I get into a synopsis of the film itself, I want to just give a very quick summary of the background of this story But I also just want to say that at some point I do want to do, it'll probably end up being a series on the Boer War and and the wars before the big Boer War, because there were other conflicts that took place in South Africa involving the British and the so-called Boers prior to the big one that took place in 1899 to 1902. And as I've mentioned here before, I studied the British Empire very closely in graduate school. It was my main field of study. And so the Boer War is just one of several big stories of British imperial history I do want to eventually cover on this show. And I do eventually want to do a gigantic overarching series on kind of the rise and fall of the British Empire, because it's a fascinating story that's surprisingly not well known today, even though it's one of the most recent giant empires prior to the United States. But anyway, the people who were referred to as Boers are settlers largely of Dutch descent with a few other groups mixed in in much smaller numbers. And these are Calvinists who, under the auspices of the Dutch East India Company, began settling in South Africa in 1652. And at least by the early 1700s, they had begun to develop their own kind of distinct African identity. They refer to themselves as Afrikaners, and they had developed their own distinct dialect based on Dutch, which they refer to as Afrikaans. And so they kind of saw themselves as white Africans in a way that... If you look at North America, many of the original British North American colonies also got started around the same time, and after a few generations there, these people, even though politically they might still consider themselves British subjects prior to the Revolution, they kind of had their own distinct identity as Americans. Now, in the wars of the French Revolution and Napoleon, the British seized the Cape. It was one of those strategic spots like Gibraltar that the British had already controlled for a long time. And so they seized the Cape and got that recognized at the Congress of Vienna in 1815, that that was one of their colonies. And so you have a situation where now it's under British control and more and more British are starting to move to the colony. And yet still the primary white population is this Dutch Calvinist Boer Afrikaans group. And then of course you have the majority of the actual people living in this area being black, but they are at this time obviously not accorded anything like citizenship rights or what have you. And increasingly, the the Boers, the Afrikaners, are chafing under British control and interference with their way of life. And so in 1836, many of them go on what they call the Great Trek, where they're unhappy with British rule and thousands of these Boers, which basically means farmers, They move north-northeast out of the Cape Colony itself and eventually establish three what are known as Boer Republics, Natal, the Orange Free State, and the Transvaal Republic. And 
It's very similar in a lot of ways to the story of like Americans going west on the Oregon Trail. There's even Conestoga wagons. There's this idea of they're going off into the frontier wilderness and they're, of course, fighting savages and all these sorts of things. And it becomes very much part of the Boer identity and mythology, the the Great Trek, in a way that the westward movement of Americans became part of the American identity and mythology. Just seven years later, Natal got taken over by the British, and at that point, most of these Boers who had gone there began to leave for either the Transvaal or the Orange Free State. And for a while, the British kind of didn't pay much attention to the two remaining Boer republics, more or less left them alone, until in 1869, diamonds were discovered in the Transvaal, and British miners began to flood into the place. And this is where Cecil Rhodes really starts to make his fame and fortune. In 1880 to 1881, the British tried to take over the Transvaal, and this triggered the First Boer War, the First Anglo-Boer War, at which the Boers won a major victory at an interesting battle called Majuba Hill in 1881 and managed to defend the independence of the Transvaal. And then for a few more years, the British kind of left things alone until in 1886, gold was discovered in the Transvaal, one of the largest gold discoveries in history. And you get a gold rush into the Transvaal. And as with the diamond rush previously, a lot of the people coming in to actually run the mines and do the mining are what the Boers would call Outlanders, meaning foreigners, especially mostly British. And they're the ones who are doing most of the actual gold mining, but the Boer republics were preventing them from having full citizenship rights and being able to have any political power. And so this becomes kind of the justification slash alibi for the eventual British attempt to just take these places over. Of course, cynical people like me would say, well, they really just wanted to take over these resource-rich areas full of gold and diamonds. And the fact that the Boers were not according the Outlanders living in these places full citizenship rights was simply the excuse. One can hardly imagine the British launching a giant war to take these places over if they still were treating the Outlanders the same way, but their main export was cauliflower. In 1895, Cecil Rhodes, along with some co-conspirators in the British government, such as Lord Milner and Colonial Secretary Joseph Chamberlain, who's a very interesting figure, by the way, if I do this big series in the future about the British Empire, he's a very important figure during this time period, kind of turn of the century. They launch an attempt to try to overthrow the Transvaal government known as the Jameson Raid, and it fails, it's foiled, the Boers stop them, and then from that point on, both sides begin preparing frantically for war, believing that it's coming. And among other things, the Boers begin to buy a lot of very good weaponry from Germany using the proceeds from the gold and silver mines. It comes to a head in 1899 when the British demand that the Boers disarm, and the Boers demand that the British remove the troops that they've been massing along their border, and neither side budges, and the Second Boer War, more commonly just called the Boer War in a lot of places, breaks out. And the Boers actually go on offense, and initially they're very successful. They win most of the early battles, but by about 1900, the British are starting to turn the tide. They start bringing in massive amounts of troops, not just from England, but from all over the empire, including Australia, which is going to be uh, the soldiers who are the stars of the Breaker Morant story are all, all Australian soldiers. 
And by 1901, the Boers are clearly losing what had been up till this point a largely conventional campaign. Now, with maneuver warfare, but still basically a conventional army versus army sort of a war. And so beginning in 1901, the Boers increasingly turned towards guerrilla warfare. And almost inevitably, of course, the British then start to adopt brutal counterinsurgency measures, including concentration camps for Boer civilians so they can't support the commandos, as the the groups of fighters were known. And at least uh, 20 or 30,000 Boer civilians die in these concentration camps where, of course, conditions are horrible, etc., etc. This is all very kind of standard stuff in these sorts of wars. When you're trying to occupy a population that doesn't want you there, there's going to be a popularly supported insurgency, and it's going to have to use unconventional measures because it won't be able to match conventional forces with the occupier. And inevitably, Sooner or later, regardless of intentions, the occupying force is going to have to turn the war against the insurgents into ultimately a war against the civilians who are their their base of support. And so there's this brutal war of insurgency and counterinsurgency that runs up until 1902 when the Boers finally throw in the towel and the British combine the Boer republics with their previous holdings in South Africa into something that they call the Union of South Africa. So... Breaker Morant is a story about a military trial of three Australian junior officers accused of committing war crimes against Boer POWs and a German missionary in 1901 during the brutal insurgency phase of the war. The film Breaker Morant came out in 1980, and it was based on a play by Kenneth Ross, who also was a co-writer on the film. And the film was directed by Bruce Beresford, a man with a long list of directorial credits, most of which I actually don't recognize. But among the few that I did recognize were the movie Driving Miss Daisy and the film Double Jeopardy. And also he apparently was the director of the recent reboot of the series Roots. Like I said before, the film is set in the latter phases of the Boer War, when large-scale conventional operations are mostly done, but you still have British imperial forces fighting against this insurgency and taking harsh measures, again, both against the insurgents and against the Boer civilians. The film centers on the fate of three Australian lieutenants, or lieutenants as the Brits would say, from a unit that had only recently been cobbled together called the Bushveldt Carboneers who were kind of like a special forces cavalry unit created to deal with the very agile Boer commando cavalry. And much of the Carboneers' manpower are men from the colonies, places like Australia, because these guys had sort of more of the background of being out there riding in wilderness environments and shooting and having to be self-sufficient and and so on. And so they sort of had a better background to be amenable to this sort of warfare than, say, a soldier recruited from London who had never picked up a rifle till he joined the military and really didn't even have much experience riding a horse. And these three junior officers from this unit are facing military trial for having killed some Boer POWs and also having killed a German missionary. And they face the death penalty if they're convicted. The film stars the excellent British actor Edward Woodward of the original Wicker Man film. If you don't know who he is, that'll probably jog your memory if you're a horror movie fan. 
Woodward stars as the title character, Harry Morant, known as Breaker, because he was supposedly the best horse breaker, you know, of wild horses in Australia. And this is a real-life character, as are all the others in the story. And Morant was an Australian originally born in England who was a rancher and also a poet before joining up to go fight in the Boer War. Brian Brown and Louis Fitzgerald portray the other two defendants in the trial. And the actor Jack Thompson plays their defense attorney, who it's pretty clear is in over his head, although he'll ultimately do a pretty good job given the circumstances. Rod Molinar plays the prosecutor, and Alan Cassell plays the commander-in-chief of British forces, the famous Lord Kitchener. And as the film begins to unfold, it is very quickly obvious that this is a rigged court with clear political motives, and that these guys on trial are just pawns in a larger game. Basically, they're being thrown under the bus as scapegoats. And their attorney is a guy who doesn't really have trial experience, and he hasn't been given adequate time to prepare a defense, and there's lots of things that quickly show that this is a totally rigged game, including some of the witnesses who could have testified on behalf of the defendants have suddenly been transferred to very distant corners of the empire and so can appear in court. The story that comes out during the trial is revealed in flashbacks, and it is that... Morant's commanding officer, one Captain Hunt, was wounded and left behind during a firefight with the Boers, and he later was killed and mutilated. Morant is then sent by another captain with a group of carboneers and told to avenge Hunt. They attack a small group of Boers they, they find, and most of the Boers either get shot or get away, but they capture one man who is apparently wearing Hunt's jacket. Morant orders that the man be executed by firing squad on the spot. In the courtroom, the defense attorney argues that the standing orders were to shoot all Boers who were found wearing British khaki uniforms. The prosecution counters that the rule was only supposed to be applied in cases where Boers were wearing enemy uniforms specifically to be deceptive in actual battle. And witnesses for the prosecution claim that they think the man had Hunt's jacket simply because the Boers were always short on supplies and just sort of were scavenging. And it doesn't necessarily mean the guy who was wearing that jacket was the one who killed or mutilated Hunt. When the prosecutor and the judges grill Morant about what rule he used to justify the execution, that's when he thunders about Rule 303. And if you don't know, 303 is the caliber of the standard-issue British rifles, the Enfield rifles that were carried by most of the British forces in the Boer War, and various versions of which were then used in World War I and then again in World War II. Now, that's not the exact same model from, from generation to generation, but it's the same basic rifle, and they all shoot a caliber called three hundred three British, so that's what Rule three hundred three means. The next day, another witness, a man named Captain Taylor, relates that the late Captain Hunt had actually told Morant in conversation that Kitchener, Lord Kitchener, the overall commander of British forces, had in fact issued orders that no more prisoners were to be taken and that as a result, Boer prisoners that Morant's men had brought in were in fact to be shot. 
But this testimony is damaged when it's revealed under cross-examination that Captain Taylor is himself awaiting trial for shooting prisoners, too. Also, the prosecutor points out that there were no written orders from Kitchener about shooting prisoners, and so this is kind of discredited as just being hearsay. Now, while the trial is going on, and these guys are being held in prison while it's going on, a Boer commando raid actually takes place on the fort where they are, and these prisoners actually help fight them off, but it ends up making absolutely no difference to their status and their trial and whatever. Their attorney cites a statement by the Duke of Wellington saying that these sorts of things should exonerate a man who's in trouble, but the court doesn't agree. The trial then covers an incident in which about a half dozen Boers came in and voluntarily surrendered, and Morant, claiming they were part of the group that had mutilated Hunt, orders his men to have the Boer prisoners all executed. The defense attorney requests to call Lord Kitchener himself as a witness to get his testimony on whether take-no-prisoner orders were issued or not. At this point, the attorney has a really good eloquent rant, the defense attorney, about the bad orders that he himself has carried out during his service against the Boers, including things done against civilians. But I do know that orders that one would consider barbarous have already been issued in this war. Before I was asked to defend these men, I spent some months burning Boer farmhouses destroying their crops, herding their women and children into stinking refugee camps, where thousands of them have died already from disease. Now, these orders were issued, sir, and soldiers like myself and these men here have had to carry them out, however damned reluctantly. Well, naturally, Lord Kitchener refuses to go testify in court, and he's not required to. Instead, he sends a man named Colonel Hamilton, who is supposedly the man who relayed Kitchener's orders to Morant's unit. And this guy is sent to testify. And in a conversation with this man prior to him going to testify, Kitchener says that he gave the orders to take no prisoners, but that was back when they were trying to use total war to break the Boers. But now... These soldiers have to be thrown under the bus and sacrificed so that the British can now make peace with the Boers and bring about an end to the war. And Kitchener somewhat subtly tells Hamilton to go basically lie under oath and say that the orders never were given to take no prisoners, which Hamilton then goes and does. Despite the defense attorney's protests, he essentially nixes all the testimony that had been giving up till now about Kitchener having ordered the soldiers to take no prisoners. Morant yells that Hamilton is lying, but of course it does no good. And then the trial starts to get into the question of whether these men murdered a German missionary who was sympathetic to the Boers and was giving them intelligence. And specifically, the story is that Morant sent Lieutenant Hancock, who's one of the defendants, played by the actor Brian Brown, who, if you don't know who that is, think of the two FX movies from the 80s. That's the guy who started them, Brian Brown. That supposedly Morant sent Hancock out to go kill the Reverend after he left their fort, and that Hancock then went and did this. Hancock produces two alibis, both of them women that he'd been having affairs with, and it visited both that day for afternoon delights. 
And he produces written testimonies from the women and gets the court to allow this rather than have them testify in person. And this seems to exonerate Hancock, although later it's revealed in conversation between the prisoners that Morant did in fact send Hancock to kill the missionary and that Hancock only went to see his lady friends after taking care of that. The defense attorney then argues in his closing statement that Lieutenant Witten, the youngest of the defendants, really shouldn't be there at all since he had nothing to do with any of the worst accusations and the only Boer prisoner that he shot was actually one who was attacking him. The defense attorney then argues that the Bushfelt carboneers were being encouraged to use unconventional warfare on the one hand and then now are being reprimanded for doing so on the other. He also argues that the alleged behavior of these three men was caused by the overall situation and that they are not barbarous men. And he says in his statement, and I'm quoting here, the fact of the matter is that war changes men's natures. The barbarities of war are seldom committed by abnormal men. The tragedy of war is that these horrors are committed by normal men in abnormal situations, end quote. And he also argues that in guerrilla war, this is particularly the case. Later that night, the prisoners are informed that they were in fact acquitted of the charge of killing the reverend, the German missionary, and they still might have to do some prison time, but likely they will not be sentenced to death over the other charges. However, while they're celebrating this, the prosecuting attorney actually slips in and reveals apparently that he has some sympathy for these defendants. He takes Morant aside and tells him that for political reasons, it is actually very likely that Morant and Hancock will be sentenced to death. And the prosecutor then says he could arrange for the two of them to escape and says they should go to Portuguese territory. And he encourages them to do it, but Morant, in fact, refuses. In fact, the next morning, all three of the men, even young Lieutenant Witten, the guy who had had nothing to do with any of the cold-blooded killings of either prisoners or the missionary, all three of them are sentenced to death, but then Witten's sentence is commuted to life imprisonment. And in real life, Witten was actually released from prison in 1904, although he was never officially pardoned. And after being released from prison, he wrote a book about all this called Scapegoats of the Empire, which was published in 1907. But Morant and Hancock, who also were sentenced to death, do not have their sentences commuted. Their attorney goes to Lord Kitchener's office personally to protest this decision, and he finds that Kitchener is conveniently absent. But while he's there, he's told by other officers that peace talks are going to start very soon with the Boers, and that the war will likely be over in a few months. So basically, these two men are being sacrificed, are being executed, in order to try and smooth things over with the Boers now that the war is winding down. When Morant and Hancock are getting ready to be executed, they are asked if they want to talk to a priest, and they each refuse in turn. Morant refuses first and says it's because he's a pagan. And when Hancock asks what that is, Morant says something to the effect that it's a person who believes that there is not a benevolent deity who makes the world just. And Hancock then says, yeah, I'm a pagan too. Morant hands the defense attorney a poem that he wrote and asks that he try to get it published. Morant says that he wants an epitaph 
on his gravestone of the Bible verse Matthew 10.36, which is, A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Both of the men refuse blindfolds and are shot. And while this is going down, we hear part of Morant's poem being read that he had handed his attorney. And I'm just going to read you the poem in its entirety here. The poem is Butchered to Make a Dutchman's Holiday by Harry Breaker Morant. In prison cell I sadly sit, a damned crestfallen chappy, and own to you I feel a bit, a little bit unhappy. It really ain't the place nor time to reel off rhyming diction, but yet we'll write a final rhyme whilst waiting crucifixion. No matter what end they decide, quick lime or biling aisle, sir, we'll do our best when crucified, to finish off in style, sir. But we bequeath a parting tip for sound advice of such men, who come across in transport ship to polish off the Dutchman. If you encounter any boars, you really must not loot em. And if you wish to leave these shores for pity's sake, don't shoot em. And if you'd earn a DSO, why every British sinner should know the proper way to go is ask the boar to dinner. Let's toss a bumper down our throat before we pass to heaven and toast the trim-set petticoat we leave behind in Devon. Breaker Morant received overwhelming critical praise, and as of right now at least, the film holds a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I completely agree with the critics on this one. This is a superb movie in pretty much every way I could think of, from the script to the acting to the technical aspects of the film and so on. And I have to say, in my opinion... For what it is, presenting the story and the themes that it does, I have to say I think it's just perfect. I highly, highly recommend you check this film out if you've not already. It's now considered an important film in the so-called Australian New Wave film movement that occurred in the 1970s and 80s, and which also includes, among many others, such noteworthy films as the Mad Max franchise and another famous historical war drama, Gallipoli, which was itself in a lot of ways very heavily influenced by Breaker Morant. And Breaker Morant has also influenced every other subsequent military trial type movie ever since. The film's budget was around eight hundred grand in nineteen eighty dollars, and it made about four million at the box office. So financially, it was a success as well. This movie obviously has a lot of themes connected specifically to the Boer War, but also a lot of themes that connect to all of those sorts of dirty wars in history. And those are the themes I really want to discuss here. Breaker Morant makes me think of a lot of the themes that came up again and again in my extended discussions with unconventional warfare expert Bill Bupert a while back, which I'll link to the beginning of that series in the show notes for this episode, by the way. Other than the system itself, by which I mean the state overall and the military specifically, Lord Kitchener is the real villain of the story. And this brings up an important point that not that many people realize, that generals, especially the higher-ranking generals, are always political. They're politicians. No matter how much they may love to portray themselves as above the political fray and so on, you simply don't get to that high up of a position in a large, modern, bureaucratic military force without being a very slick politician. And of course, being a very slick politician means, among other things, that you are cold-bloodedly 
calculating, manipulative, and ruthless, and that you're willing to sacrifice lesser pieces on the game to get your goals accomplished. There's politics behind the trial in several ways. First off, the Australian government, which had just become a self-governing commonwealth within the British Empire, wanted a conviction in part so that the country could minimize its kind of rough-and-tough frontier image. And then Kitchener, and then, of course, the British state above him, they want a conviction to help close the book on the war and turn the Boers now into collaborators within the British Empire rather than foes. A lot of the defense in the trial centers around basically a version of the Nuremberg defense, the defense of, I was just following orders. And I have to say, unlike a lot of other military trial type movies, Breaker Morant presents this in a very complex, shades of gray way. So, on the one hand, these defendants, at least Morant and Hancock, not really Witten, are guilty of doing things that most people would consider morally and legally wrong. But on the other hand, look at the situation these men found themselves in. They volunteered to go fight for king and country out of patriotism, then found themselves in the middle of a nasty insurgency. They've seen their friends killed and sometimes mutilated, and they're facing an enemy that in their view is being unfair. So I'm not saying that it makes it right or anything, but their hatred is completely understandable if you're putting yourselves in their shoes. And so their hatred, their desire for revenge, all these things on kind of a visceral level, I think we can all, if we're being fair, understand how one could come to feel that way, given the same circumstances. And keep in mind, these sorts of extreme measures aren't just being tolerated, but up until this point in the war, they've been actively encouraged by the very same high command that now wants to convict and kill them for doing these things. On the other hand, look at it from the perspective of the Boers themselves. From their perspective, these are foreign aggressors and occupiers who started this whole business by trying to conquer the Boer republics in the first place. But then again, turn it another way and realize the Boers themselves, you could say, are invaders and occupiers of lands that had for countless centuries prior to any white person showing up in Africa been occupied by the black native Africans. And they've been there for thousands of years prior to the first white man, British or Dutch, showing up. But looking at the Boer War, at this conflict specifically, and then at these episodes that did occur of atrocities, I think it's very important in these sorts of situations, and in other wars that fit this description, to always, at some point, zoom the camera lens out on the story a bit wider, and look at who and what put these men into this horrible situation in the first place, and to give those people even more of the blame than the common soldiers who are at the pointy end of the spear in actually carrying out these dirty orders. In other words, to quote the line from the Bruce Springsteen song, Johnny 99, now I'm not saying this makes me an innocent man, but it was more in all this to put the gun in my hand. The fact is, these low-ranking soldiers are simply pawns and cannon fodder in a bigger political game. They're completely expendable on the battlefield, and they're equally expendable if they need to be sacrificed in cold blood through trial and execution in order to further the political goals of the power elite above them. And so I think it's possible to 
despite understanding their actions as being evil. And even if, like me, you don't think that the Nuremberg defense is a valid one or should be a valid one, certainly not morally and shouldn't be legally as well, a valid defense to justify committing crimes of this sort, to still have some sympathy and empathy for these men. Because after all, how many of us, if we were in the exact same situation, fighting in a distant land against a nasty insurgency that was killing your friends, how many of us wouldn't sooner or later sink to that level, despite whatever good intentions we may have had at the start? Furthermore to that, you got to keep in mind, these men were born and raised and inculcated to be patriots for their empire. So anyway, the film makes me think of what always happens in counterinsurgency warfare as far as escalating brutality once the pieces are set in motion for that sort of a conflict. And it also makes me think of the many other cases in which the low-ranking officers and enlisted men get thrown under the bus for committing war crimes when it's politically expedient, while the people up the chain of command who gave them the orders, encouraged these things, and caused the situation in the first place almost always somehow manage to escape any sort of punishment. And just mentioning a few examples, the Philippines, Milai, Abu Ghraib come to mind as prominent examples in American history. When it's politically necessary, the low-level people will get thrown under the bus, and the higher-ups who made all this shit happen will typically have no significant negative consequences whatsoever. There might even be a situation in which many of those higher-ups will get promoted, maybe get some shiny new medals and fancy ribbons to put on their shirt, and maybe they'll even get a chance to do another one of these sorts of wars elsewhere in a few years. Meanwhile, the grunt who did the dirty work, who's now getting thrown under the bus, he's certainly guilty, but, as Bob Dylan says, he's only a pawn in their game. And as Breaker Morant himself says to Hancock in the film shortly before they're to be executed, Well, Peter, this is what comes of empire building. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever. But to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. And you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. 
you can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.